This is Morgan Beatty speaking for Alka-Seltzer, bringing you news of the world night special. Tonight, Washington exclusive preview of the Marshall Plan by detail. London, by election, with a meaning all its own. Vancouver, drama and tragedy on the shores of the Pacific Northwest. Hollywood, preview of Santa Claus. More scandal in high places. Those are the headlines. I'll be back in a moment with news of the world. By November of 1947, nearly 11 million babies had been born in the United States since the end of World War II. Young parents were staying home with their children. The 1947-48 season had the largest radio audience in history. Homes with radios jumped 6%, car radios 29%. The major networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, and the Mutual Broadcasting System added 147 new affiliates. Network revenues topped $200 million. How about it, friends? Everything all set for the big Thanksgiving feast tomorrow? Well, let's have a look at that market basket. On the eve of Thanksgiving, as NBC broadcast News of the World with Morgan Beatty, the United States was a country in transition. World War II had created fundamental changes in society. While men of all races and creeds were overseas spilling the same colored blood, women had mobilized and taken charge of the workforce. When veterans collected enough points for an honorable discharge, they returned home with different ideals and what we now call PTSD. As new cars, roads, and homes brought young families to the suburbs, racial discrimination came to the forefront in the face of the GI Bill, where a much higher percentage of white Americans were having their applications accepted. And here are signs of our times. New York, James C. Petrillo has lifted a musician's union ruling that has prevented the use of musicians on cooperative radio network programs. The ruling provided that in every such case, a standby musician had to be hired in every city where the program was heard. Standbys will not have to be hired any longer. Americans were organizing. In the year after VJ Day, more than five million struck for better wages and benefits. This debilitated key sectors of the economy and stifled production. Consumer goods in high demand were slow to appear on shelves and in showrooms. It frustrated Americans who desperately wanted to purchase items they had forsaken during the war. It caused the largest inflation rise in the country's modern history and the Taft-Hartley Act, limiting the power of labor unions. President Truman was seemingly at odds with Congress over every domestic policy, and his approval rating sank to 32%. The special edition of News of the World presents tonight a complete preview of the long-range Marshall Plan nearly a week before it goes to Congress. The overall plan, as advertised, is 16 to $20 billion spread over four years. Now, the breakdown. Emergency aid between December the 1st and March the 31st, 597 million for France, Italy, and Austria. That's the 597 million you're hearing about these days. $500 million to cover the additional cost of occupation of Germany until March the 31st. We're shouldering some or most of Britain's obligations in Germany. And $60 million interim aid to China. Add them up and the total of emergency aid, that is only to March the 31st, by official estimate is 2,657 millions up to, as we said, April the 1st. The U.S. war debt had topped $240 billion. Because the nation emerged as one of the world's leaders, America was expected to have the largest hand in rebuilding Europe. On the eve of Thanksgiving, news outlets reported that, in order to stabilize Europe, Americans should be ready to resume sacrifices they made during the war. Not agreeing to do so could result in political enemies taking over the continent. Hollywood, 
RKO Studios has announced that producer Adrian Scott and director Edward Dimitrik have been dismissed because they refused to tell the Congressional Un-American Activities Committee whether or not they were communists. The changing world stoked people's fears. Anti-communism was abound. On Monday, November 24th, the House Committee on Un-American Activities declared a list of unfriendly witnesses who had refused to answer questions about alleged communist influence within the film industry. These witnesses became the Hollywood Ten. Internationally, Princess Elizabeth married Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, on November 20th in a ceremony at Westminster Abbey. It was recorded and broadcast by BBC Radio to 200 million people around the world. And two days after Thanksgiving, the UN voted to partition Palestine into independent Arab and Jewish states, with Jerusalem the only neutral ground. Immediately after, a civil war broke out, and the original plan was never fully adopted. But Thanksgiving has long been a time to pause all internal and external conflicts if possible, and allow the spirit of gratitude into our homes and lives. The day prior is also the busiest travel day of the year. Thanksgiving 1947 was no different. It's the night before Thanksgiving and all through movie land, the word has got around that Santa Claus has come to town. Even that bad widow boy, Junior, found out about it, and Red Skelton doed it again. He just threw a tremendous master switch to turn on the greatest concentration of light ever seen in a nighttime parade. I'm standing on the famous terrace at Hollywood's Radio City at Sunset and Vine. As Red threw that switch, the most famous movie and radio stars in the world congregated before me to start their annual parade of stars down Hollywood Boulevard. On Wednesday, November 26th, the annual Hollywood Christmas Parade was taking place in Los Angeles. Each November, beginning in 1928, extravagant holiday decorations adorned a one-mile stretch of Hollywood Boulevard between Vine and La Brea. The brainchild of businessman Harry Blaine and the Hollywood Boulevard Association, they promoted the thoroughfare as the world's largest department store. It was complete with lights, a reindeer-drawn sleigh, and brightly decorated Christmas trees. News of the World was there on Sunset and Vine reporting. Santa has his own trouble. He has to ride with Jack Benny. And if Benny never rides again, he admits his beautiful float is far better than his old Maxwell ever was. And scrambling off his float up here to a microphone is Ralph Edwards, the man who knows. Ralph, what's on your mind? Uh, second for Santa Claus, first for me, 13 for wreath, 7 for tree. Bring me an auto, a book, and a ball, and I'll say Merry Christmas in spring, not in fall. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ralph Edwards. Right before me is Silver McGee and Molly on a replica. It was an event that connected average Americans with celebrities. It reminded people that together we are better than we are alone. And for many, the annual Santa Parade was for them what it will be for us tonight. The start of the holiday season. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 97. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we open up our home for the holidays with the first of a three-part miniseries on radio's highest-rated season. In November of 1947, radio's most listened-to show was the Lux Radio Theater, which aired on CBS Monday evenings 
and had a rating of 31.4. 15 shows had ratings higher than 20 points. David Sarnoff's NBC was, for the 20th consecutive year, the number one network. But CBS was quickly rising, thanks to William Paley's focus on creating the best original dramatic content on the air. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song? It's the United States Air Force Band's rendition of a Thanksgiving classic, Over the River and Through the Woods to Grandmother's House We Go. It's the perfect song for Thanksgiving Day, 1947. If you're on Facebook, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group to keep in touch with news like Burning Gotham, our completely original audio drama series. It will be set in 1830s New York City. My writing partner and I have been doing research and development since June of last year, and we've now moved into the script writing phase. Listen to the latest teaser at thewallbreakers.com and be on the lookout for new announcements and audio regarding the series by the end of the year. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Good morning, folks. Well, we've got another one of those days. At least the promise of a day, according to the weatherman, where we're going to have more snow and more cold weather. But we can't complain, because out here in the heart of America, we're just so much better off than some of the folks in other sections of the country. We've only to pick up the newspaper, listen to the radio, and hear about storms that are ravaging the East Coast and the West Coast that's too dry, especially down in Southern California. Well, out here, we're storing up moisture, moisture that we may need, you and I know very well, sadly, before the year is out of the way. A report I like to get that I am getting, however, is we're getting quite a bit of snow out in the western part of Kansas. And that is so necessary if we're going to get a good wheat crop out there because we got off to a late start this year. Well, yesterday I was down to Concordia, Missouri, attending the... On the morning of November 27, 1947, 40% of the U.S. was still rural. For the country's farmers who often lived miles from the nearest city, radio's morning reports were an important piece of information. With inflation soaring, farmers needed to eke out every cent of profit they could. ...way up in the hundreds of thousands of dollars... A net profit to those farmers of $45,000, most of which I saw distributed... It was for many, a lean Thanksgiving. It was a very good meeting. I enjoyed every minute of it. And by the way, while we're talking about meetings, you folks up in Sabetha, Kansas, I'll be up there this afternoon to speak at the annual meeting of your cooperative egg organization. Good morning, darling. Good morning, sweetie. I hope you noticed Julius's face when he ushered our guests in this morning. I did. Well, I guess uh, Julius is a movie fan. And that's not all. He's a baseball fan. <laughs> yes, and it's certainly written all over him today. Well, it's 8.15, and this is Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick, coming as usual, direct from our apartment on 66th Street in New York. 
And today we're very happy to have at our breakfast table... If you were up and about at 8.15 a.m. on Thanksgiving morning in New York City and turned your dial to the Mutual Broadcasting System's flagship, WOR, you would have heard Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick. The morning talk show was hosted at home by Dorothy Kilgallen, Broadway columnist for the New York Journal American, and her husband, actor Dick Colmer, radio's second Boston Blackie. It was a daily show, on for 45 minutes at 8.15, Monday through Saturday. Although it was a local series, Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick was nationally known, thanks to WOR's 50,000-watt signal, often heard by over 20 million people. And a violet-colored sweater set, high-necked sweater, and also a cardigan. By 1947, the show was earning the couple $75,000 per year. That's over $860,000 today. This is 660 New York. Be sure to buy the Journal American's big Thanksgiving Day special. See pages of Christmas gift suggestions. And watch for Social Security numbers worth $7,000 in this issue of the Journal American. It's the only evening newspaper published on Thanksgiving Day. Not to be outdone, when NBC saw mutual success, they launched their own New York husband-wife morning talk show. This is Tex McCrary. This is Jinx. Cascade time. Featuring reporter Tex McCrary and actress and model Jinx Falkenberg. Talk alley of the Waldorf Astoria. And I'm afraid I'm about to libel our guest today. He's been described as, quote, a sour-faced man with saddlebag eyes and a voice that sounds like he's filing his teeth. That's not true, uh, Tex. I never file my teeth. I keep them in my mouth at all times, morning, noon, and night. <laughs> yes, the if voice... If I did file them, I'd file them under tea. The teeth. <laughs> teeth for two. Liberace's theme seem so. That's the voice, and that means... Mm-hmm. Fred Allen is our guest today. No doubt about it. Nobody could disguise their voice in the Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York is, of course, one of the more familiar signs that Christmas is rapidly approaching. The big balloons and the crowds that follow them provide a cheerful picture. And even if this Christmas is not being celebrated in the happiest of circumstances... People waking up on the morning of November 27, 1947, in New York did so to frigid temperatures. The city was hosting its annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which had recently become world famous thanks to being prominently featured in the 1947 film Miracle on 34th Street. Beginning at 10 a.m., WOR switched programming to coverage of the parade. It had been a busy year for NBS. They added 104 new affiliates, bringing their total to 488. There were still less than 170,000 American homes with TVs, but over 155,000 had been purchased during the calendar year. In New York, NBT, the forerunner to NBC TV Channel 4, covered the parade route. By the next year, radio actors like John Gibson were feeling the crunch of oncoming mainstream network television. And this was really the beginning of the end for radio as we knew it, John. Did you recognize that early? Oh, yes. Yes. 
For example, I remember going out to Chicago to record a show with Jimmy Durante and Don Amici when they were happened to be in Chicago and, you know, close enough so that I could go out by train and spend the night and then come back the next night. Mm -hmm. Coming through Pennsylvania at this time, I noticed these houses all with the television antennas everywhere you looked. And I suddenly realized I better get out of radio because here it is, even out here like Johnstown and places like that, the houses uh, way down the valley had tall antennas and the ones up high had short ones, but they were everywhere. And all of a sudden, uh, radio was slackening up and uh, whether you like television or not, you had to get into it if you wanted to keep on working. Jan Miner, let's talk about Laura Lawton. Now, mm -hmm. this was one of the top soap operas, I must confess, and it's I think very Edward early agreed. in the morning. <laughs> I know that it was like I, uh, ten o'clock in the morning. I didn't follow the adventures of Laura Lawton, but perhaps wasn't uh, easy. <laughs> we did everything. <laughs> what was the character like? What was the situation? She was a marvelous, generally? wonderful, beautiful, lovely lady. She's what all of us would like to be as women. You know, understanding, sympathetic able to go through crises of all kinds. Well, and what were the crises like? What well, I remember problems? one day Laura was visiting a friend who was dying of a dread disease in the hospital after talking with her for a while as best she could. Where, As a matter of fact, Mary Jane Higby played the friend who was sick and she was going <gasps> all the time in the deathbed. And I looked down and said, oh, Elizabeth Manning, what a beautiful, complete replica of Queen Hatshepsut's pin she was wearing. It was a giveaway that we mm -hmm. were giving away mm -hmm. and people would write in and get it, but always it would happen in some tragic <laughs> moment so that you could hardly say the words, you know. And I got caught on the Hatshepsuts and I said, Queen Hatshepsuts, and Ray Johnson broke up laughing, Mary Jane was dying laughing, everybody was laughing on that microphone. It must have been tragic to the listeners who were really involved with the situation. Yes, you know, I can imagine. Having us all so. <laughs> and Rosa Rio's organ playing big music to keep us from... While families were prepping Thanksgiving lunches and dinners, morning soap operas took to the air. Opposite WOR's radio coverage of the Macy's Parade between 10 and 11.30, WNBC broadcast Road of Life, Dr. Joyce Jordan, This is Nora Drake, and Katie's Daughter. Then, at 11.45, live, coast to coast from New York, Laura Lawton signed on. It starred radio and TV legend Jan Miner. Next, Laura Lawton. The makers of Babo present Laura Lawton, the story of what it means to be the wife of one of the richest, most attractive men in all America. The story of the conflict between love and riches in a world so many dream of, but where so few dreams come true. Listen, ladies, listen. 
If you want your Christmas cards to be especially outstanding this year, if you want to save real money on your cards, then act immediately. And Laura Lawton will send Lauren was a brilliant photographer for a prominent magazine and wife to the head of the shipbuilding company. There were many premiums offered to listeners by the sponsor Babo, like here in 1947, when listeners were offered Christmas cards, just like the ones that brought Laura and Peter together again. same cards that have brought so much happiness to Laura and Peter. They're large, handsome cards, the French fold type, each with a different design in full, brilliant Christmas colors. Some show Christmas candles, bright red points... The show's producers were Frank and Ann Hummert. The Hummert's radio ties grew from the prominent Chicago advertising agency, Blackett, Sample, and Hummert. Frank Hummert was a celebrated copywriter. His wife, and shoemaker Ashenhurst Hummert, began as an editorial assistant and quickly earned respect throughout the organization thanks to her ingenuity, insight, and resolve. By the 1940s, the duo controlled four and a half hours of national weekday broadcast schedules. They brought in more than half of the network daytime hour advertising revenue, and their shows received more than five million pieces of correspondence annually. When they switched their productions from Chicago to New York, they began employing some of New York's most famous character actors. Enough for your entire list. Mail with your name and full address to Laura Lawton. Box 76, New York City 8. That's Laura Lawton, L A W T O N, Box 76, New York City 8. Send now and have your cards in time for early mailing. Offer good only in United States. And now, Laura Lawton. Official Washington has had to get in touch with Angus MacDonald the brother-in-law of Laura's husband, Peter Carver. Since the Foreign Office in London, England, evidently feels that Peter's disappearance has more significance than is apparent at first glance. And so Angus's wife, Gail, is hearing from Angus the news that Peter is missing. Gail, you have to take this thing calmly. I'll try to, Angus, but it's my brother. Where is he? What happened? We don't know. That was Peter's secretary, May Case, on the telephone just now. She says they have word that he's safe. But I... Darling, look, why all this happened, I don't know. But I do know this much. It all has to be kept very secret indeed. Why? This is Peter, my brother, that this has happened to. Nothing has happened to him, Gail. Yet. Well, I doubt that anything will. You can be so wise and, and, and strong and intelligent, Angus. You can be so smart. Gail. Angus, we should go to England. We should go there now. That's out of the question. Angus, I sat here. Planning Christmas with you. Planning it all around there, coming home. I... There's one of Laura's lovely Christmas cards. I was going to decorate the staircase of their apartment just the way she has it there on her lovely card. And now... Oh, Gail, Gail. What's going to happen, Angus? What's going to happen? Meanwhile, in London, England, Laura shivers a little as May Case gives her a cup of tea. I'm so cold, May. I'm so terribly cold. Drink this, Laura, dear. This, the shivering. It's nerves, I know, but if I could only stop it. Relax, Laura. You have to relax. Yes, of course, I have to relax. It isn't too easy, though, May, is it? It isn't easy at all. But Ilse Borg told you Peter was safe. Yes, didn't she? And all this is... Is reaction. Of course. 
just reaction. And one day soon, you will be together, you and Peter, and you will laugh at all this, at all this intrigue and excitement. I know. Or we... Peter and I will be divorced, and Ilza Borg, who... who loves him so that a light shines in her eyes when his name is mentioned, then she will have him, and they will live happily ever after, like the story. Ilza Borg may love Peter, but Peter loves you, Laura. <laughs> Dear May, you're sweet. If Peter loves me, why isn't he here? Why isn't he here? And why am I here? How oh, many questions beat on my brain like an ocean. A strange ocean, all storms and tempests. No tranquil seas at all, May. Laura. Peter's in France, in a farmhouse on the coast. And for all I know, he's standing on some seawall, looking across the channel. Thinking of you, Laura? I'm sure of it. Are you sure of it? Yes. How nice, May. How nice. And only the English Channel separates Peter and me. Only that. And it couldn't be wider. He couldn't be further away, actually. May, let's face it. We're worlds apart. Worlds apart. And they had and special format that made it a successful uh, growing concern. One and the, the identification ideas. was one of it. Right. So when you tuned right. in, you always knew who the character was and what they were doing. As far as Frank and Ann Hummert were concerned, they ran a tight ship, didn't they? They certainly did, and they had very specific ideas and, uh, and did a grand job. I uh, mean, they people really had, perhaps are wondering I think they had five or six a day. They had Stella Dallas, right. Widow Brown, Laura Lawton, Amanda of Honeymoon Hill... Helen Trent, Lorenzo Jones, David Harum. They were all Hummert shows. Yeah. How did they manage to produce so many shows? Well, they had a group of directors and a group mm -hmm. of producers and a group of writers. I mean, they had a tremendous organization. And then, of course, they had coordinators. And Frances von Bernhardi was head of casting, and she had assistants. And it was like working for MGM. In November of 1947, the Hummert Production Company was responsible for 19 network shows, broadcast at all times of the day. It had been a good year for the couple. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow.
This is Albert Mitchell's Daytime Answer Man program at your service. A program that answers your questions and helps you out with your problems. Anyone can ask a question about anything and everyone will receive a reply. Some on the air, all by mail. And now, here he is, your Daytime Answer Man. Good afternoon and a happy Thanksgiving Day to you all. Now for today's questions. Here's the first from a Bridgeport, Connecticut listener. How long did it take the pilgrims to eat the first Thanksgiving dinner? A whole week, even with the help of the Indians. And a Freeport, Long Island woman asks, what kind of a fish is a skipjack? The skipjack or High noon in the east brought forth live coast-to-coast programs on the major networks. All CBS stations like WCBS in New York, WBBM in Chicago, and KNX in Los Angeles broadcast Wendy Warren's news program. ABC broadcast interviews with travelers, and singer Kate Smith took to the air on Mutual. At 12.45 p.m., while CBS was broadcasting Our Gal Sunday and NBC a Thanksgiving food conservation program, The Answer Man took to the air over WOR in New York. A Scarsdale, New York boy wants to know if they had folding chairs back in the 18th century. Oh, yes, and before that, folding stools, which were called fold stools and were not unlike the present-day camp stool. A bride living on Staten Island writes, I would like to make my first Thanksgiving Day dinner as nearly like the first one served by the pilgrims as possible. Can you tell me what they ate? Well, the main items of food served at the first Thanksgiving Day feast were turkey, Indian pudding, and pumpkin pie. A letter from a Larchmont, New York listener reads, As I remember it, the first Thanksgiving was a celebration of a bumper crop the pilgrims had harvested. Am I right? And what was the crop? You are right. The crop was 20 acres of corn and six of barley and peas. A note from a Mamaroneck, New York housewife reads, Please tell me if the early colonists learned how to make cranberry sauce from the Indians or if the Indians learned how from the white settlers. Neither. Each knew how before they met the other. When the pilgrim settlers arrived in this country, they found the Indians making a cranberry sauce with maple syrup, while the people of Europe had learned to make cranberry sauce with sugar from the Scandinavians. Each quarter-hour installment was filled with all kinds of information. New York's answer man was Albert Mitchell. The series was sold as a concept and developed in individual markets. Joe Mansfield was the answer man in Los Angeles. As many as 2,500 questions came in each day. Co-creator Bruce Chapman and his staff answered almost a million pieces of mail per year. Now back to the answer man. A Brooklyn woman asks, Is there such a thing as a turkey with all white meat? Yes, white turkeys produce all white, or at least all light meat. And a Pelham man in New York student inquires, Did the people of Europe have much knowledge of Arabia in the 18th century? No, their knowledge of Arabia was mainly based on the works of the early Greek and Latin writers, such as Herodotus, Strabo, Pliny, and Ptolemy. A Prospect Plains, New Jersey housewife wants to know how she can protect some shelves of canned and preserved foods. You might tack a piece of oilcloth on the edge of each shelf so that it hangs down over the contents of the shelf below. This will keep harmful light and heat from the canned and preserved foods. This question comes from a Philadelphia listener. What was the worst blizzard the East has ever suffered? Those who survived it say the blizzard of 1888. The blizzard blew from March 11th to March 14th, with New York and Philadelphia being the city's hottest hit. 
The wind at one time blew the snow at a rate of 46 miles an hour. It was the great blizzard of 1888 that played a tremendous role in the creation of wireless telegraphy, thanks to so many downed telephone and telegraph poles. Wireless telegraphy is what became radio broadcasting. Now back to the answer man. A Paoli, Pennsylvania listener asks, was the very first Thanksgiving proclaimed on the 3rd, 4th, or 5th Thursday in November? On the 2nd Thursday in December. The first Thanksgiving was proclaimed by Governor Bradford to be held on December 15th, 1621. And a young bride living in Scotch Plains, New Jersey asks, could I make candied sweet potatoes without using sugar? Oh, yes. For every six medium-sized sweet potatoes you wish to candy, use a half cup of honey, maple syrup, or corn syrup. Here's a question from a Mount Vernon, New York woman. Do you know that poem that tells us what to be thankful for on Thanksgiving Day that you could read for us? There are many good ones, but Thanksgiving by Ellen Topper seems to answer your question the best. It goes, For health and strength, for home and friends, for comfort in a time of need, for every kindly word and deed, for happy thoughts and pleasant talk, for guidance in our daily walk. For all these things, give thanks. At 1.15, while WCBS was broadcasting Ma Perkins, and WNBC, Mary Margaret McBride, WOR was live from Franklin Field in Philadelphia for the annual Cornell versus Penn football game. Penn was in the midst of an eight-game winning streak against Cornell. They won 21 to nothing before a crowd of 80,000, which included President Truman. It was the final game of an undefeated season. Broadcasts of football games were fast becoming part of Thanksgiving entertainment tradition. What was the best thing you've been associated with? What did you enjoy the most? Oh, I don't know. I enjoyed the whole thing. That is, radio was a, was a wonderful time to work in those days, a great time, because that was it. People had that for entertainment. The great thing about it was, I think, about radio above television, is it was, it was consistent that the show went on and stayed in that same spot year mm. after year after year. And I think it sold merchandise regardless of ratings just because it was there, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it's unfortunate that they switch the shows around so much. You get used to a, a television show in a certain particular spot at night. You look forward to it. All of a sudden, it's on a different night. Yeah. Hint Hunt, presented by the makers of Chiffon Flakes and Armor Canned Meats, and Lemon Abner, presented by the makers of Alka-Seltzer, usually broadcast on Thursday afternoon over many of these stations, will not be heard today due to the special broadcast which follows immediately. Company, makers of fine American watches for over 80 years, presents its sixth annual Thanksgiving Day greeting to America. Two hours of star-studded entertainment broadcast throughout the United States. 
more veterans' hospitals and to our armed forces overseas so that those loved ones of yours in the service may celebrate with us and shortwave round the world. In the next two hours, in the order of their appearance, Elgin brings you Don Amici, Alan Jones, Jimmy Durante, and Gary Moore, Mary Jane Smith, Sir Lancelot, Larry Starch, Margaret Whiting, Vera Vague, the Paige Cavanaugh Trio, Bob Sweeney and Hal March, the Doctors of Harmony, Hootie Menuhin, Jack Benny, Mr. Kitzel, Red Skelton, and the Elgin Orchestra and Chorus under the direction of Louis Silvers. And here is your host for the full two hours, Don Amici. As a time-honored greeting for this day, ladies and gentlemen, it's Happy Thanksgiving. And all the stars Ken Carpenter just mentioned join me and the Elgin Watch Company and the Elgin Jewelers in wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. Many of them are old friends of yours, others are newcomers, stars of tomorrow. All joined together to bring the warmth of their personalities and good wishes into your homes this Thanksgiving day. For Thanksgiving, perhaps more than any other day we celebrate, is the holiday of home. A simple day without tinsel or fireworks recalling the little things long remembered. When the thoughts of those separated by the miles turn back to their beginnings, to friends and family, to home. In the spirit of Thanksgiving at home, Alan Jones sings, It's a Grand Night for Singing. It's a grand night for singing. At 1 p.m. Pacific Time, the 6th annual Elgin Thanksgiving Variety Special went on live, coast to coast from KNX and CBS Hollywood. Elgin Watches were first incorporated in August of 1864 as the National Watch Company. The founders eventually based their operations in the growing city of Elgin, Illinois, and changed the company name. By the turn of the 20th century, it was one of the largest watch manufacturers in the world. During World War II, all civilian manufacturing was halted as the company moved into the defense industry, manufacturing military watchers, chronometers, fuses for artillery shells, aircraft instruments, and cannon bearings. Their agency of record, J. Walter Thompson, confined radio sponsorship to their annual Thanksgiving and Christmas specials, which began in 1942. The 1947 Thanksgiving special was produced by Earl Ebby and hosted by Don Amici. You know, Don, it's difficult when we have someone of your stature on the program to confine his career to one medium, but we are going to talk about radio tonight, and so we want to find out where it all began. I know that as far as network radio is concerned, it was Chicago. Is this where it started for you? Yes. A sustaining program was the first coast-to-coast -coast show that I ever had. That was in August of 1930. Then I started coast-to-coast -coast on a program called Empire Builders for Great Northern Railroad. That started in September of 1930, and then in, I believe, it was either late March or early April of 1931, I took over First Nighter, and I did that until June of 1937. Also, a show called Grand Hotel on Sunday afternoons, and the only other network that I had in that time, and this is the only soap opera I did, was a thing called Betty and Bob, and I did that for two years. Wherever you find song, you'll find laughter. And Elgin's Two Hours of Stars wouldn't be complete without the laughter generated in millions of American homes by two gentlemen known as the Nose and the Haircut. Reunited for the first time since they acquired shows of their own, Elgin is particularly proud to be able to bring Jimmy and Junior back together again this Thanksgiving. Here's the younger half of the partnership, a young man who often pays a buck for a haircut, 
but seldom gets clipped for the $64. Gary Moore! Don Amici had previously spent time as an integral part of the Chase and Sanborn Hour, earning a reputation from Edgar Bergen as one of the best comedic ad-libbers in the business. He returned to radio in the fall of 1946, starring with Francis Langford and Frank Morgan in The Old Gold Show. His skits with Langford on both shows would become The Bickersons. In 1947, he also starred with Catherine McLeod in That's My Man. Welcome on the Elgin program. We're just so happy to see you. Well, I'm happy too, Don. In fact, as a lightning bug said, when he caught his tail in the pencil sharpener, I'm delighted. No end. <laughs> Comedian Gary Moore had spent the previous four seasons as Jimmy Durante's Friday night co-host. He was versatile, able to be both a straight man or a comedic sidekick. He emceed evening programs and was soon given a daytime variety show on CBS. Well, like maybe a lecture or something. A lecture, mm -hmm. huh? Like on what subject? Well, like maybe a special lecture for single ladies visiting our town for the first time, entitled, What to do when accosted on the street by a strange man, and what streets to walk down to make sure you'll be. <laughs> you, think, uh, you think something like that might be useful, Don? Well, uh, uh, yes, in a limited sort of way. Mm -hmm. But uh, how about something with more appeal for the masses? For the masses? Oh, for us, I've got the very thing. Movie gossip. Oh, you like movies. Oh, and dude, I do. Don, I am, I am especially crazy about those pictures with one-word titles, like shock, lured, pursued, possessed. And next year, David O. Selznick is going to present the greatest of them all. What's it called? Pooped. <laughs> I don't know. It, it should be just ginger peachy. Meanwhile, stand aside, Don, as I present the latest and intimate news scoops gathered from all over Hollywood. Here's a scoop. I was talking yesterday to Rodney Blupford, the actor. He tells me his next picture will be a remake of the old hit, He Who Gets Slapped. Rodney will play the title role, He Who. <laughs> Obviously a Chinese character. Exclusive Stupendous Pictures has just announced plans for their latest epic. It'll cost $5 billion with 5,000 stars... 3,000 extras, 500 producers, and 200 directors. The picture will be called... Just Plain Bill. <laughs> Attention! I was talking to Orson Welles yesterday as he sneaked down Hollywood Boulevard trying not to attract any attention. He was riding a flamingo side saddle. <laughs> And Orson tells me that he is going into the perfume business as a sideline. It seems that while on location in South America, he picked up several undiscovered rare odors. He has mixed them all together and is calling this passionate mixture... Glendale! <laughs> Sounds just fine. This, this perfume, friends, will come in three styles for three different types of girls. The first one is for very smart, sophisticated girls. It's called... Yes... The, uh, the second perfume is for the more indefinite type. It's called Maybe. And the third type is for very dumb girls. It's called... Huh? <laughs> we, we wish you luck, Austin. And here for my final scoop is the hottest news ever to come out of Hollywood. New York and Florida papers, please stand by. The news, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Ping pong, spelled backwards, is pronounced... Gnip, gnip. <laughs> Thank you. Thank 
Gary, I don't know what I wouldn't give to hear that all over again. Oh, thank you, Don. I wouldn't give anything either. <laughs> Besides, I haven't the time, old man. I'm, I'm expecting a phone call. A phone call? Oh, from an old sweetheart? Don, you couldn't have phrased it more neatly. Hello, Elgin program. Gary Moore speaking. Hello, Junior. This is Jimmy. Jimmy Durante, we're on the air. Why aren't you here? I'm having such a good time, I forgot, Junior. I'm at a big New Year's Eve party. Jimmy, New Year's Eve isn't for a month and a half. What are you doing there? Johnny Myers is picking up the checks, so we wanted to get started early. <laughs> for many listeners on the East Coast, this Elgin special was broadcast just as families and friends were sitting down to dinner. And surely enough, here he comes now, the little man with the big nose and the heart to match, the one and only Jimmy Durante in person. President Truman's 1947 Thanksgiving luncheon was served with fresh tomato juice, grilled ham, candied sweet potatoes, spinach, hot bread, and baked stuffed peaches with meringue. His dinner served mushroom soup with roast stuffed turkey, giblet gravy, mashed potatoes, buttered peas, and braised celery. For dessert, he had molded fruit salad, mince and pumpkin pie with coffee, nuts, and candy. In the post-war world, President Truman wasn't the only government official under heightened public scrutiny. The trail of dishonesty in high places in the backwash of war led tonight straight to the Army and Air Force lists of officers who have received medical discharges since VJ Day. Major General Harry Vaughn, the President's aide, opened up the touchy question by direction of Mr. Truman himself. He sent a letter today to Secretary of Defense James Forrestall, ordering him to hand over the names of all officers who hold a medical discharge. General Vaughn said any legitimate disability will not be questioned. But he knows of one officer who holds a medical discharge and at the same time is holding down a $75,000 job in civilian life. If a man is handicapped, said the general, to the extent that he gets tax-free disability pay, he's not worth $75,000 to private industry. And that's what happened in Washington today. If only there was a hero that both adults and children could rely on. You're one of that breed that doubled as uh, actor and radio announcer. Which were you applying for when you were making those rounds? I applied. Originally, I started out as an actor, some impersonations, which I no longer do, of people you never heard of anyway because they're all dead and gone <laughs> 30 years. But I've always figured out announcing was just another facet of acting anyway. You act the part of a salesman, and that's what announcing really is. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Today, eat Kellogg's Pep, the super cereal. Super as in Superman. Kellogg's Pep, the sunshine cereal. Kellogg's Pep, the Super Serial, presents The Adventures of Superman. Today, Superman, in his guise of Clark Kent, accompanied by young Jimmy Olsen, responds to a mysterious telephone call. 
A call that was suddenly cut off by a cry of pain. Are you sure the call came from Pop Klein, Mr. Kent? Uh Uh-huh. Is that his candy store on the right there? Oh, yeah, uh, next to the Chinese laundry. Oh. Okay, driver, right here. Ah, Here you are, driver. Keep the change. Thanks, Mike. How'd you go, Jim? Okay. Where do you meet old Pop, Mr. Kent? He's the nicest, sweetest guy you'd ever want to know. That's so? Give you the shirt off his back. Think he'll remember you? Oh, sure. Wait and see. Hmm. Nobody here. He must be in the back where he lives. He comes out when he hears the bell. Jim! Hey, don't scam me like that. Jim, here's a nickel. Get on the phone and tell the operator to have an ambulance sent here at once. Huh? Then call police headquarters. Get Sergeant Malloy if you can. Tell him to hurry down. Oh, leaping lizards, what's up? Pop Klein's in that back room, Jim, but he's not coming out. He's been hurt. He may be dead. Say, we'd better warn you good and plain. Any day now, your gyrocket offer is going to close on the air. Correct. As afternoon turned into evening, soap operas and Thanksgiving specials gave way to juvenile adventure serials. In New York, Dick Tracy took to the air at 4.45 over ABC, and opposite Terry and the Pirates, The Adventures of Superman signed on at 5.15 over Mutual. Superman debuted on radio in syndication on February 12, 1940, over WOR in New York. In August of 1942, it joined the full Mutual Network lineup, airing daily in the late afternoon. This offer is limited to the United States. And now, the adventures of Superman. All right, Kent, what's the story? How'd you happen to get mixed up in this? Phone call, Sergeant. Pop Klein called me at the Daily Planet, but before he could tell me anything, I heard him cry out, and the connection was cut. Jimmy here knew the location of the store, so we hopped a taxi and came down. Found the old man on the floor in the back room, pretty well beaten up. Mm, was he unconscious when you got here? No, no, he passed out a few minutes before the ambulance arrived. Did he say anything? Yes, he said the man who beat him up wanted him to put nickel punch boards in his store. Yeah, crooked ones. Yeah, most of them are crooked. Any description? Uh-huh. Big and heavy set with small eyes and thick lips. Called himself Muscles. Mm, Muscles McGraw, one of Joe Solitaire's boys. Who's Joe Solitaire? Ever heard of Slippery Joe? No. Afraid not. Well, he runs a gambling ship anchored offshore. Used to be top man in the slot machine racket. But when that went out, he started this punchboard gimmick. Stealing nickels from kids. Oh, why isn't it stopped? There's only one way to stop this racket, Kent. From the top. Get Joe Solitaire and the racket dies. Thanks, Sergeant. Thanks for what? The good advice. We're going to get Joe Solitaire. <laughs> According to the police, Joe Solitaire's got his crooked punch boards in 5,000 candy stores. Most of them near schools. Figuring the lowest average take of 50 cents in each store, that adds up to $2,500 a day, more than $15,000 a week. Great Scott, Kent, that's incredible. Yes, but what's even more important, these punch boards develop gambling habits in youngsters. Habits that often lead to more serious things. George, you're right there. As the new mayor of Metropolis, you've got to stop this racket and stop it fast. You're right. I'll call a special meeting of the city council for 10 tomorrow morning, and we'll stop it. It's all set, Kent. 
police department's been ordered to go all out to clean the city of Punchboard. Oh, swell, Chief. Now we've got to give this publicity. Right. That's your job. Meanwhile, three miles off Metropolis Harbor, safely out of reach of the law, the gambling ship Lady Luck, a palatial 200-foot yacht, rides at anchor ablaze with lights. In the main salon, the low hum of voices mingles with the clicking of roulette wheels and the hushed rattle of dice rolling across a green felt-covered table. But in a cabin on the upper deck of the yacht, all is silent. There, a man is seated alone at a table playing a game of cards known as solitaire. He is short and somewhat ugly. His thin, glossy black hair is plastered down on his egg-shaped skull. His eyes pop out like a frog's. They are gray and watery, and they look like large, peeled white grapes. His name, taken from the game of cards he constantly plays, is Joe Solitaire. Over and over again, he slips cards from the deck in his left hand and turns them face up, trying to fill in the pattern laid out on the table in front of him. He is so intent on the game that he fails to look up even when a knock sounds on the door of his cabin. Who is it? It's me, boss, Muscles. Come in. Eddie brought the papers on his last trip out and I figured Close you... Close the door and keep quiet for a minute. Got a winning combination here. Okay. Uh, what do you want? Eddie brought the late papers on his last trip out. What do they say? The Daily Planet's hitting the punch boards harder than ever. The cops clean out 500 stores today. Ah, but don't worry, boss. We'll get them back in. What else? The Planet says the old guy I give a going over to is going to die. <laughs> They're telling me. What are you laughing about? Well, I'm laughing because it's funny. Oh, so you think it's funny. How many times do I have to tell you that dead storekeepers can't take punch boards? Oh, now, wait a minute. You said yourself the roughhouse. I said roughhouse, not kill. Roughhouse, roughhouse. Don't you know what the word means? So I hit him a little too hard. You stupid, ignorant fool. Don't you have a brain in your head? Stan Zan tells me he hit him a little too hard. What are you worrying about? This ain't gonna last. They got a new mayor, so they're putting on a show. New mayor happens to be Perry White, editor of the Daily Planet. He's not putting on any show. It means business. Nah, in a couple of weeks it'll blow over. This won't blow over unless we blow it. When does Eddie make his next trip into shore? Uh, 20 minutes. Tell him to wait. We're going to write a letter to the new mayor. I want Eddie to mail it. What are you going to write him? I think maybe I'll ask him to come out here and talk things over with me. I think maybe we can make a deal. Well, what kind of a deal? Kind you think, idiot. Kind I always make. A good deal. Running his manicured hands over the playing cards scattered on the table, Joe Solitaire smiles. His definition of a good deal means trouble for someone. We'll return in just a moment to find out for whom. So keep listening. Now, 
decide quickly how many gyrockets you want from Kellogg's Pep. Jackson Beck was the show's longtime announcer, who also doubled as a character actor. Yeah, that's right. Now, there were two office boys. One was Jimmy Olsen, the other was Beanie. Jimmy Olsen was played by Jackie Kelk or Jack Grimes from time to time. Uh, he was the senior office boy, and he's the one that appears in all the cartoons. But there was a sort of subsidiary character for comedy relief, which I did, which was kind of a rip-off of uh, Ezra Stone's Henry Aldrich. You know, a real cracked voice, high kind of... Gee whiz, Mr. Kent, what are you going to do next? <laughs> you know, everybody get panicked and fall down. I just wish you had a recording of all the breakups that took place, because that show was Hysteria Incorporated. <laughs> Many's the time that we broke up and rolled on the floor. And it was, you know, it was tough then because everything was live, nothing on tape. So if you made a boo-boo or you fell on the floor and you got hysterical, there was no cutting the tape and then going back and doing it over again when you sobered up. And now, back to the adventures of Superman. It is early the following evening. Harry White, now mayor of Metropolis, has received Joe Solitaire's letter. It's a cleverly worded letter, indicating that the gambler and racketeer is willing to discuss dropping the punchboard racket, but that he cannot come ashore for fear of arrest. Unable to contact Clark Kent, who is covering the efforts of police raiding squads to clean the crooked punchboards out of candy stores, Harry White has invited Lois Lane to accompany him out to the gambling ship. As we join them now, they are seated in Joe Solitaire's upper deck stateroom. In his hands, he holds a deck of cards, which he riffles at annoying intervals. Perry White is concluding a conversation with the ugly little racketeer. Well, let's leave it at this way, Solitaire. Either you get your dirty punch boards out of Metropolis, or we'll get them out for you. And if you ever set foot in the city limits, I'll send you to jail for life. And he's not kidding, Mr. Solitaire. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. I remember that. Uh, let's go, Lois. Okay, Chief. Launch is waiting to take you ashore. The attendant on deck will lead you to the gangplank. Good night, Miss Lane. Mr. White. Good night. <laughs> All right, muscles. Come out from behind the screen. Oh, I thought you was going to make a deal. Shut up and listen. When Eddie gets off with him in the launch, you take the speedboat. Circle round, come up ahead of them. Before they reach the channel, boy, open up the speedboat wide and cut the launch in two. Hey, are you kidding? No. Speedboat has a sharp metal bow. You can slice a launch in half like cream cheese. Yeah, but what about Eddie? One of these days you'll learn the world is full of Eddies. You mean you're gonna knock him off, too? Why not? You're getting two for one. It'll stack up better with the cops that way. Go ahead, muscles. Reaching for the deck of cards, Joe Solitaire begins flipping them over. He hesitates for a moment as the ace of spades, the death card, comes face up. A faint smile creases his pale lips as he places it in position on the table. <laughs> I can't lose this one. Gang, whatever you do, don't miss the opening of tomorrow's episode in this exciting racket-busting story. Clayton Collier voiced Clark Kent, with Joan Alexander as Lois Lane. Julian Noah played Perry White, and Jackie Kelp was Jimmy Olsen. Director Jack Johnstone was one of the people responsible for giving life to this production. Was there a time that you were doing Buck Rogers and some other programs? Yes, there was one time when I 
was doing Buck Rogers, two Philip Morris dramatic spots on the Philip Morris variety shows, and Smiling Jack. Oh, and during that time, I also, we recorded Superman. Those were busy days and nights. I left the house right after breakfast, got home between midnight and one o'clock. Those were busy days. At this time, the Kellogg Company, makers of Pep and the cast of Superman, send you our very best Thanksgiving wishes. To all of you and your families, happy Thanksgiving. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Oh, I did throw, Frank Stanton was president of CBS. I did throw him out of the studio one time during rehearsal, not knowing who he was. We, we had an... <laughs> had an interesting uh, opening for the show. The engineer, Irving Reese, had hooked up a series of microphones in some mysterious fashion, in such fashion that you could hear a pin drop anywhere in the studio. It would sound like a The announcer said Buck Rogers in the 25th century, and this, gave, this hookup was what gave a, an echo effect that made it sound as though the voice was coming from outer space. And we were in the rehearsal one day when uh, I cued whoever it was, the announcer, and just as he opened his mouth, the studio door with a terrific swoosh that almost deafened me because of the high gain in my earphones. And I took them off, walked out to the guy and said, don't you know any better than to walk into a radio studio during a rehearsal? I was polite but very forceful and only learned later that it was Frank Stanton, president of CBS. Mercy on a soul. On the frigid, blustery night of December 16, 1835, the worst fire in New York City history swept through Manhattan. Everything south of Maiden Lane and east of Broad Street, at that time the city's chief merchant district, was turned to rubble. The fire caused an estimated $20 million in property damage, over a half billion dollars today. The official investigation found that an exploded gas pipe ignited by a coal stove caused the fire. 
no public blame was assigned. But what if New York's greatest accidental fire was no accident? Coming to your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, a new audio drama about the fastest growing city in the world and the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please go to thewallbreakers.com. We take you now to Club 15. Welcome to Bob Cosby's Club 15. 15 minutes of the best in popular music. Starring the Andrews sisters, Margaret Whiting with the modern airs, Jerry Gray and his orchestra. Brought to you by Campbell Soups. Mmm, good. Mmm, good. That's what Campbell Soups are. Mmm. Good. And here's the head man of Club 15, Bob Crosby. Let's go, Jerry Gray. Mama, won't you dance with me? Oh, dance with me. Please dance with me. Mama, take a chance with me and dance with me tonight. And when you whirl me as East Coast families were digesting dinner and settling in for dessert, Bob Crosby's Club 15 took to the air on CBS, with 15 minutes of popular music opposite Guy Lombardo on NBC. Programs like Club 15 and the Chesterfield Supper Club were often used as buffers between late afternoon and primetime programming. Most shows recorded in Hollywood were initially done for Eastern primetime. By Thanksgiving of 1947, West Coast listeners received either a single live broadcast, a delayed transcription, or a live repeat. For example, at 8 p.m. over WNBC in New York, the Aldrich family, starring Ezra Stone as Henry Aldrich, took to the air. Although NBC aired the show live in Chicago over WMAQ at 7, on the West Coast, NBC programmed the series to air at 8.30 p.m. on KFI. Uh, say, Bob, I don't mean to be serious, but you know, this is a very special week for those of us who work in radio. Why, sure. It's the only week we in radio don't have to be sensitive about having a turkey. <laughs> well, it's, uh... <laughs> it's more than Thanksgiving week, Bob. This is also National Radio Week, a tribute to Marconi. Well, what's Marconi got to do with radio? Marconi, Bob. Marconi. You know, it's fat spaghetti. <laughs> Spaghetti? Oh, Bob. You know, Marconi is the father of radio. Without his work, we couldn't have ship-to-shore telephone or inter-steamship radio. Without him, we couldn't talk to airplanes in flight. Yeah, and without him, we'd never know what John's other wife told Mary's other husband. <laughs> you sound like a case for young Dr. Malone. Oh, I'm just kidding, Megan. One of the most romantic things about radio is Margaret Whitey. There 
gypsies know is true that when your love wears golden earrings he belongs to you see when i first started i did all kinds of acts when things were at their lowest ebb when i was 27 years old after doing about 20 acts I finally got so, you know, I had to change my name every week. I couldn't get a job with the same name twice. And then I met Gracie when I was 27. What made us a good combination, really, was the fact that I had talent, but I didn't have it on the stage. I had it off the stage. But I would have been nothing without Gracie. All the talent that I had rubbed off Gracie's performance. Gracie was a fine actress. In other words, Gracie was not a comedian. At 8.30 Eastern Time, live from Los Angeles, Burns and Allen signed on for Maxwell House. Another cup of Maxwell House coffee, George. Sure. Pour me a cup, Gracie. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last drop. And that drop's good, too. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. Special guests tonight, the romantic French singer Jean Sablon, yours truly, Toby Reed, Gail Gordon, Hans Conried, Meredith Wilson of the Maxwell House Orchestra, and Bill Goodwin. For America's Thursday night comedy enjoyment, it's George and Gracie. And for America's everyday coffee-drinking enjoyment, it's Maxwell House. Today, more Americans buy and enjoy Maxwell House than any other brand of coffee at any price. Yes, Maxwell House. Always good to the last drop. Friends have been invited to the Burns house for Thanksgiving dinner today, and Gracie has just finished stuffing the turkey. We find her now relaxing in the living room as she glances through the morning paper. Is the dinner coming along all right, dear? Oh, yes, everything except the pumpkin pie. I'm afraid we'll have to do without one. Why? Well, I finally got the dough around the pumpkin, but it kept rolling out of the oven. (laughs) You're supposed to... Well, never mind, it's too late. (laughs) What are you reading? The movie news. Here's an item about Jean Sablon. He's just arrived in Hollywood to make a picture. Oh, yeah, he's that French crooner. Mm Mm-hmm, the women are crazy about him. They go for him, huh? Oh, yeah, just like Sinatra. You know, Blanche Morton has taken lessons so she can learn to squeal in French. (laughs) Sablon must be quite a sensation. Mm Mm-hmm, and it burns me up. He's not half the singer you are, sugar throat. I really think I'm better Why, you can out-sing Jean Sablon with one tonsil tied behind you Oh, honey, I... Oh, nobody can make a song as believable as you When you sing Chababa, Chababa, Chihuahua, you sound like a Chihuahua I guess I'm convincing mm. yes. Your voice is intoxicating, just like wine Sing for me now, George Uncock the bottleneck of your throat and pour me out a quart of fermented melody. Chababa, chababa, chihuahua, and chalawa, cook a laguma. Oh, and they want Sablon to make a picture. Well, you're much better. Chababa, come in. 
Happy Thanksgiving to you. Oh, same to you, Dr. Miller. Oh, you're joining us for dinner, aren't you, Doctor? Yes, I thought I'd drop over and see if I could be of any help. Perhaps I can clean and dress the turkey. Oh, no, thanks. He's clean and I don't see any point in dressing him. <laughs> We'd only have to undress him to eat him. Yes, yes, yes of yes. course. <laughs> George and I were just talking about Jean Sablon. Uh, we can't understand why he's a more popular singer than George. George sings? Oh, like a nightingale. Well, I'd like to hear you, John. Oh, I've got an idea. I'll play this record of Jean Sablon, and then George will sing, and you can compare them. Wonderful. Have you studied voice, George? No, it's just a natural talent, Doctor. Uh, I've sung practically all my life. Well, haven't you even studied breathing? No, he's done that practically all his life, too. <laughs> I missed two years. Mm. Here's John Sablon singing Mademoiselle. A small café, Mademoiselle. Un rendez-vous, Mademoiselle. Le violin. How warm and sweet, and so were you, Mademoiselle. Toby Reed was the announcer. Hans Conried was an often featured character actor. Well, you consider it now. There were many of us engaged in it. It was. It is hard to explain to persons who have never uh, utilized it as an evening's entertainment, as we in our time did. When I tell you that I worked for fifty cents a night, and that apprenticeship was very valuable. There were only five of us doing a show. It was a very cheap carbon copy of a very successful show out of New York called March of Time. And we called it It Happened Today. And I remember in one 30-minute show, for which I was paid 50 cents and wasn't worth much more, I had to play 18 voices in 30 minutes. You know, you keep mentioning this, the craft which has all... Well, it has, has been the lost, same facility say. now the, uh, and the same scope that being a dirigible pilot or a buggy whip <laughs> raider, you know. It was a craft. We did our work, and those of us, I think, I can say honestly, we felt then, and I can speak out now and say we were very good indeed, those of us who worked. They were pretty capable actors within their scope and sphere. that George hasn't got. Just a French accent. That's right. Dr. Miller, you're a psychiatrist. Why is the French accent so appealing to women? Well, you see, French is a very romantic language. Mm -hmm. It makes everything sound naughty. <laughs> Suppose a Frenchman said to you, Allez me chercher un terrain d'eau chaud. Je veux tremper mes pieds. I tell him I was married. <laughs> What he said to you was, get me a pan of hot water. I want to soak my feet. <laughs> what a language. Now, you see, George, that's why the women mob Jean Sablon. Well, George, now I'm waiting to hear you sing. Okay. Of course, I won't have any accompaniment. Well, now bear in mind that you're singing a cappella. What's that? A cappella means without an orchestra. Oh, I thought that was a patrillo. <laughs> George sing. All right. <clears throat> Ain't misbehaving all by myself. Ain't misbehaving. I'm happy on the show. Oh, Sablon, you fool. Go back to France. 
scram toot sweet. Hmm. Well, Dr. Miller, analyze that. Why don't people mob George? You mean to say they don't? <laughs> well, no, and I can't understand it. Why isn't he as popular as Jean Sablon? Yeah, how come? Well, of course, this is more pathological than psychological, but I would say that you're retarded by a status aritinoidius coupled with a laryngeal cachexia and augmented by a diaphragmatic flaccidity rendering a severe trauma to the acoustical organs. What does that mean? Your voice stinks. Limbered up yet. <laughs> Get a load of this. From time to time and every climb, blessings come from above. To some name, to others pay. Why, come in. Look, Burns, as I know you have to kill a turkey to eat it, but do you have to choke the poor thing? <laughs> Nobody's choking a turkey. No, Bill, George was singing for Dr. Miller. Doc, you want to wind up in one of your own straitjackets? <laughs> I didn't realize the full extent of my request. Now, the, the two of you As usual, Gracie held George's singing in a higher regard than most. That month, Burns and Allen's rating was 21.4. Nearly 20 million people heard this broadcast. Yes, swell. Then after dinner, I'll sing for him. Well, that, that'll be a fair exchange, George. You'll give him the cranberry and he'll give you the raspberry. <laughs> Quiet. Gracie, go get Sablon. Yes? Oh, hello, Mr. Sablon. Hmm. Voici une jolie, jolie demoiselle, très chic, très charmante, très belle. Now, if you want to soak your feet, get your own hot water. <laughs> Honeymoon, we went to Cleveland, and uh, we were booked there at Keith's Cleveland, and we had three days off in Cleveland, and we arrived in the hotel at five o'clock in the morning, and we got married at seven, but we didn't get a room because we sat in the lobby for two hours, because if you get a room before seven, you had to pay for an extra day. <laughs> so we sat there for two hours and got married at seven o'clock and checked in, and our honeymoon was at the hotel for three days, and then we opened Cleveland. And we're married for 38 years. What made it so good? We didn't work at it. Uh, the uh, Gracie didn't marry me because I was a great lover. She married me for laughs. I got more laughs in bed with Gracie than I did when I played Las Vegas. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure that millions of Americans today have given thanks that they live in a free country. But that's not enough. Having freedom is like having a good job. You want to keep it, you have to work at it. Here's what we must do. Take a more active part in our national life. Use the vote and the other rights the Constitution gives us. Take more pride in our accomplishments as a people. At the present time, many nations are swaying between the idea of a totalitarian state and democracy, not knowing which to choose. That their decision should be in favor of freedom is of the utmost importance to us. So let's set an example that will make their choice the right one. Remember, freedom is everybody's job.
pay. Where do you live now, Flo? I live in Idaho. And what do you eat now, Flo? Eat? I eat jello. Jello in those six delicious flavors strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. And tonight, Jello wants to send you Thanksgiving greetings. We hope you all had a wonderful day with a big family get-together and all the happiness and fun that belongs to Thanksgiving. That's the greeting we send you from Jello, 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 J-E-L-L-O. Be sure to listen next week when our guest will be Bing Crosby. Until next Thursday, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's number one preferred brand of coffee. Always good. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Carlo D'Angelo, whom I mentioned earlier, gentle, soft-spoken director there in New York, one of the early big-time directors. Carlo D'Angelo, Gordon White, uh, the days of the early big-time programs. Carlo was directing the Al Jolson show from the control room. And during rehearsal one day, they finished the skit, and Carlo punched the talk back and said, Al... Yeah, what do you want? He said, Al, I think if you accent the word groom in that last gag, you might get a little bigger laugh. Joseph said, who the hell do you think you are, you little dago son of a bitch, telling Jolson how to read his lines? Look, Buster, I've been in show business too many years. I know all about it, and I've got seven million bucks to prove it, and what do you got? Friends, Al. <laughs> of course, he was, he was through <laughs> on the show, but he'd scored. the Kraft Music Hall, starring Al Jolson with Oscar LeVant, Lou Bring and his orchestra and chorus, and our guest, Dorothy Lamore. So keep on looking for a bluebird and listening for its song. Whenever April a shower This is Al Jolson in the old Kraft Music Hall. Well, today is Thanksgiving, and we all have a lot to be thankful for. I know today when I sit down to my Thanksgiving dinner, I'm going to bow my head and give thanks for the food that I eat, thanks for the clothes that I wear, and thanks for Larry Parks. <laughs> And I, I, I'm especially thankful that you like to hear me sing, because there ain't nothing I want to do more. Come on, Lou, let's take it. When the wintry winds are blowing and the snow is starting in a fall.
Earlier in 1947, Bing Crosby and ABC signed Al Jolson to a $50,000 contract for 10 Philco Radio Time guest appearances. Jolson showed up for just one when he signed another contract to host Crosby's former NBC show, The Craft Music Hall. Bing Crosby was forced to rely on a mix of movie star guests and drop-ins from other ABC shows. In a season of inflated ratings, Crosby lost 20% of his audience, falling out of the season's top 50 for the first and only time. The Kraft people weren't complaining. In the three seasons since Crosby's acrimonious departure from NBC, Kraft had seen its music hall rating cut in half. Meanwhile, Al Jolson was hot again after the success of his film biography, The Jolson Story, which earned six Academy Award nominations and won two Oscars. It proved to be a good investment. The 60-year-old singer pushed the show's rating back into first place on Thursday and a return into the season's top 20 with a rating of 18.9. Johnny was uh, just naturally funny, you know. He thought funny. Then John Dietz, who was our uh, director on Casey Crime Photography, he was tired of the same stick. He was a little bit pixelated, too, you know. The Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation brings you Crime Photographer. <laughs> Do you think they'll ever put my statue in the Hall of Fame? What are you famous for, Ethelbert? For 27 straight years, I always got the same part of the turkey. <laughs> That's some kind of a record, ain't it? Well, because you consistently get it in the neck, that might make you notorious, but not really famous. Mm -hmm. No, no, Ethelbert. You know, you have to do something really big, you know, something important to deserve a famous name. Like what? Well, like Anchor Hawking, the most famous name in glass. At 9.30, opposite the Seal Test Village store on NBC, Casey Crime Photographer took to the air live, coast to coast, over all CBS stations. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tony Marvin. Every week at this time, the Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation of Lancaster, Ohio, and its more than 10,000 employees... Bring you By the late 1940s, the show had established itself as a primetime hit. During the 1947-48 season, it had a rating of 15.6. Our adventure for tonight... After Turkey, the bill. It starts Dots Cotsworth as Casey and was then sponsored by Anchor Hawking. Although by 1947, Stotts was entrenched as a primetime star. He also retained the male lead in the daytime melodrama, Front Page Farrell. Hey, that turkey wasn't half bad. <laughs> you didn't leave much of it. Neither did you. Shall I order dessert now? Uh-huh. Hey, waiter. Gus. Okay, kid. What do you want now, Joe? 
We're ready for the plum pudding now. Two plums pudding. That's what you want, too, isn't it, Lottie? Yes, and coffee. Same here. Okay, Keith. I don't know why you won't let me do anything for you in a classy way, Lottie. I asked you out for a Thanksgiving spread, and you made me bring you to a cheap place like this. Joe, you can't afford to throw your money away. How do you know what I can afford? I mean, I'd have as good a job as my cousin Bird yet. That doesn't What's mean I... Bird got to do with He's it? He's got plenty to do with it. You didn't have to work today. You'd be out with him now instead of me, I know. Bird isn't working tonight, Joe. He came home before we left there. I could have had dinner with him if I'd wanted. Yeah. Oh, don't be like that, please. Why shouldn't I be? While I was in... While I was away... You and him became awful good friends. We were always friends, the three of us. We grew up on the same block. Yeah, but while I was away, he moved into your old man's room and house so we could be closer friends. Oh, don't start that again tonight. We're out for a pleasant evening, and it has been pleasant so far. Please, Joe. All right. Comes our dessert. Two plums of pudding and coffee. You know, when you go out with me, Lottie, you're going to get class whether you think I can afford it or not. I'm going to take you to dance land. I'm going to buy you a whole roll of tickets. Best you'd get out of that tight white fur as a soda in a movie. All right, that's all now, guys. Bring me a check, will you? Yes, Senator Joe. All right, Joe. Since you won't drop the subject, we'll talk about Bird. Well. He wants me to marry him. Figured that from that dirty double-crosser. He isn't a double-crosser. He knows I've been going with you since we were kids that I've always been crazy about you. And while I was taking that bum rap on the reformatory... You didn't he... take a bum rap, Joe. You asked for what you got. All right, so the cops had the goods on me. That gave Bird no right it to... It gave say... me a right. You do a lot of thinking. Mm. And so you decided a sneaky yellow drip like my cousin is a better bet than me, huh? I don't think Bird is sneaky or yellow. No, you don't, huh? No. And I don't think you're a criminal. It's nice of you to say that. I'm not being nice. I'm saying what I believe. If you make me sure you've learned your lesson, I... Yeah? Well, you won't have to worry about me liking Bird or... or anyone. There's never really been anybody but you, Joe, only... Only I've got to be sure. How do I make you sure, Lottie? Just show me and Dad that you're steady, that's all. And I've been showing you that since I came back. Didn't I get a job right away? Yes, Joe, but... But I don't see how you can afford those two new suits and that overcoat with what you're making. Oh. Oh, I get it. Bird can buy clothes or take you out, and it's okay, isn't it? He's never had trouble with the cops. But the minute I spend an extra buck, you and your old man figure I've glommed it somewhere. Oh, no. Oh, Yes. Your old man especially. He hates my insides. He don't want you to have anything to do with it. If Dad hated you, he wouldn't let you stay at our rooming house. He rents rooms and I pay for the one I rent. That's business. And to ease your mind about the extra dough I spent, Lottie, I'm a lucky guy with dice and a good pool player. I... Here's your check, kid. Thanks, Gus. Pay you so we can get out of here. We're going to dance land and we're... What? Joe? I haven't got my wallet. Oh, you've lost your money? I don't know. Maybe I left it home. Well, phone Dad. He'll look in your room. Well, if he found it, I'd have to go there for it. It's only a few blocks. You stay here, Lottie, while I go oh, and see Oh, you, you don't have to leave the lady here, kid. You're an old customer. I know you come back and pay. Well, thanks, Gus, but I can make better time alone. Hand me my overcoat. Even that racket's the oh, blue one there. Oh, sure, sure. Mmm. Oh, this fancy coat. <laughs> nice and bright with red stripes. You got a class, kid. Yeah, but right now I got no dough. I'll come back as soon as I can, Lottie. I hope you find your money. Yeah, I hope so, too. And how. Gee, Casey, it's nice of you and Miss Williams to have Thanksgiving dinner here in the Blue Note with me. Oh, we're nice people, Ethelbert. Well, the very best. True, warm-hearted, and generous to a fault. 
Pass the salt. Also ball. honest, kind, and steadfast. Here's the salt. And <laughs> pepper. You know, we're really understating our sterling qualities, Annie. We've risen to the heights of magnanimity, whatever that is, by chewing Thanksgiving turkey in this crummy joint we see every day, simply because our little pal here had to work. We could only get away from his bartending long enough to grab a meal on the house. We hope you appreciate our sacrifice, Edelbert. Oh, I do. Good. Pardon my reach for the Tabasco. <laughs> to prove your gratitude, Ethelbert. You can pay for our dinners. Yeah, well... Tabasco, uh, Annie? Huh? Thanks. Hey, you've made a splendid suggestion, Casey. Paying our bill will relieve Ethelbert of a small part of his obligation for our company. Yep. Say, come to think of it, you two are working today yourselves. You didn't have time to get a full meal any further away from your office than this crummy joint. Ethelbert, you impugn our motive. He destroys my faith in human nature, Casey. Ah, uh, yes. The spirit of the day is entirely lost upon this lug. Casey, if you'd pay me what you already owe this crummy joint, I'd be only too happy to buy your dinner. <coughs> Get it, Walter! This yeah. guy's too wise for us, Annie. <laughs> I'm afraid so, Casey. Casey. Oh, yeah, Walter? You wanted the bar phone, you said he did. Oh, nuts. I'm only just finished my turkey. No, this means no dessert, Casey. I'll see what Burke wants. Well, stall him off if you can. Yeah, I'll do my best, Annie. Hello, Grace. <laughs> Hello, Casey speaking. Uh, look, Burke, we haven't finished our dinner yet. Oh, all right, all right. Wait till I get my pencil out. Corner of Whitestone and Evans. Well, what happened there? But is that all? For a run-of-the-mill story like that, we gotta leave our dessert? And... Well, okay, Burke, all right, goodbye. Why I stick to this newspaper racket, I don't know. What was it, Casey? All the crap. Look, we got to get out to Whitestone and Evans, Ann. Some mug just held up a filling station there and got away with a couple of hundred bucks. Or Did he shoot anyone? No, no. Huh? It's one of those inside page fillers. <sighs> Burke says news is light and we got to cover it. All right, where is Whitestone and Evans? The way uptown, not far from uh, Petrakis Olympian Restaurant. You know, we've eaten there a couple of times. Yeah, I remember. Hi, any description of the hold-up guy? Yeah, he wore a flashy blue overcoat with red stripes. See you later, pal. So long, Ethelbert. So long. Say, wait! Who's gonna pay for this... crummy joint? Our story will continue in just a moment. The program announcer was Tony Marvin. Years later, he recalled the CBS interview process. Well, it was murder. <laughs> it was absolute murder. After all, you know, in those days, I think even today, of course, why should it change? When an announcer has an opportunity to come down and audition for the big network, well, you know you were really in the big leagues, and they had an announcer's audition that took at least 45 minutes to an hour, and you had to have a minimum of three to five years' experience in the field prior to that. You had to have a working knowledge of two other languages, primarily French, German, because you did a lot of symphonic work, you did operatic work, and you also had to be fast on your feet. They'd lock you in the studio after you'd gone through a list of things from Mussorgsky to Beethoven and all the rather esoteric types of symphonic and operatic music, and you had to be conversant with that. And then they say, all right, now we, you have ten minutes. We want you to describe the studio in minute detail, just what it is in there just what you think if you were locked in this room for 10 minutes, how would you uh, occupy or tell someone about the cell you're 
incarcerated him, you know. <laughs> and then after that, of course, then they gave you news that you read cold. It was just handed to you, now go. When you got through, you knew that you had been put through a bit of a ringer. In my case, I was called into the production office. They said, well, you've been accepted, and you will start on such and such a date. And I remember I almost fainted because I was going to become a member of the CBS staff. And I still love CBS. After all, it's my alma mater. But I remember dashing to the nearest phone booth and calling my wife and saying, Honey, guess what? I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Uh, really, yes, it was. It was marvelous. I'll never forget it. And, of course, the money was magnificent. That's right. They yeah. paid big money in those days for well, staff work. I want to tell you, when you were a staff announcer at CBS or NBC in those days, you were rolling in wealth. You started out at $50 a week. <laughs> And if you were a good boy and did your job well, at the end of five years, you now got $75 a week. in front of this door, Jones, when the hold-up guy locked you in? Oh, yeah, yeah. I spilled it there earlier, and I had enough time to clean it up. Now, the mug must have stepped in it, Casey. Along with the description of his flashy coat I've sent out, I included instructions to look for a guy with dirty grease stains on his shoes. Well, the two things together ought to nail him, Sarge. Yeah, I told the Sarge here something else that ought to nail a guy. Now, what's that? Well, one of the bills he stole out of the money drawer was an old 20 that had been torn in two and kind of stuck together with scotch tape. I, I took it in just before the robbery, so I remember it. Well, looks like you cops have plenty to work on, Sarge. Yeah. Well, we got all there is, Annie. Let's blow out of here and get back to the blue note and get some... Plum pudding and coffee. Ha uh-huh, come on. Hey, 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 ain't you going to take my picture first? Uh, you, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll kind of stand here by the empty cash drawer hey, and uh, point my finger at it. Yeah, that'll be original. I'll stand and point, pal. Go ahead. Great. All set now. Shoot. Jones. Yeah, hey, hey, gosh, I'm getting my picture took. Don't walk in front of the camera. I, I have just heard what happened to you. About that guy in the blue overcoat which holds you up. Well, I'll tell you all about that later, Gus. So as I get my picture. No, no. I tell you and those cops about it now. You'll tell. Who are you? Oh, I, I am Gus Nicopopoulos. I am waiting in Petrakis Olympian restaurant three blocks from here. And I know who is the kid who robbed my good friend Jones. You know? Yeah, I know as soon as I am told the news about that fancy overcoat. What are you talking about? Yeah, what are you talking about? I tell you cops everything. Even where to find this hold-up kid. He tell me he is going with his girl to dance land. John Gibson played Ethelbert, the bartender at the Blue Note Jazz Cafe. We put crime photographer on at CBS when I don't think more than 20 people saw it. <laughs> but it, we worked as hard as if it had been a, for an audience of 100 million. It was a half-hour telecast done very legitimately, and it was in 1945, and that was my first... One of the executives at CBS called me back a few days later, and he said, we've decided we'd like to do a series of this on television. And I said, well, good. Let me know when it's on. I'd like to watch it. (laughs) And that was my attitude. (laughs) I hate it. (laughs) So the shoes fit Joe, and he had to wear them, huh, Casey? Mm. They pinched so tight he cracked wide open, Ethelbert. He admitted planting a duplicate of his coat in Ferd's closet, everything. If his scheme had worked, Lottie would never have spoke to Ferd again and she'd have married Joe. Well, that was Joe's idea, Ethelbert, but it worked out in reverse. Lottie sank into Ferd's manly arms when she heard the lowdown and she seemed very comfortable. Gee, what some guys will do for love. <laughs> As my sister Edna says, quote, if love didn't make the world go round, there wouldn't be so much dizziness. Unquote. Or so much niceness. Yeah. A grand guy. Lottie's old man. 
Hey, Annie, what's the matter with her? We got plum pudding and coffee still coming to us. How about it, Ethelbert, huh? Oh, it's about time. <laughs> well, what's so funny? <laughs> there isn't any more. <laughs> Crime Photographer, starring Stotts Cotsworth as Casey, is brought to you each Thursday by the Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation, makers of Fire King Oven Glass. Anchor Glass Containers, Anchor Caps and Closures. All products of Anchor Hawking, the most famous name in glass. Just two years after placing only one program in Thursday's top ten, CBS pulled even with NBC, thanks to their strategy featuring original dramatic shows. Crime Photographer is directed by John Deets. The original music is by Archie Blyer, and the program features Miss Jan Minor as Anne and John Gibson as Ethelbert. Herman Chittison is the Blue Note pianist. This is Tony Marvin saying goodnight for the Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation of Lancaster, Ohio, with offices in all principal cities of the United States and Canada. This is CBS for Columbia Broadcasting System. You were asking something? In the 40s, was there as much concern for the ratings as there is now? Oh, you bet there was. Good Godfrey Nielsen and Hooper and Nielsen. That was before, I think, Crosley, or maybe not. But it certainly was. There was concern. And as a matter of fact, my deceased husband did those Websters, and it was a well-known fact that those Websters beat every week Ozzie and Harriet, First Nighter ran some of the top, top comedies straight into another evening when they were on Friday evenings. No one could top them, and no one could top those Websters. At 10 p.m. Eastern Time, as families put their young children to bed, ABC broadcast Mr. President from its Los Angeles KECA affiliate, starring Edward Arnold and Betty Lou Gerson. Mr. President, starring Edward Arnold. The American Broadcasting Company and its affiliated stations present Mr. President. Mr. President, at home in the White House, the elected leader of our country, our fellow citizen and neighbor. These are little-known stories of the men who've lived in the White House. Dramatic, exciting events in their lives that you and I so rarely hear. Mr. President first signed on June 26, 1947. Producers picked Arnold to star because his voice had the aggressiveness of Teddy Roosevelt, the humility of Abraham Lincoln, and the tenacity of Andrew Jackson. Now, Edward Arnold as Mr. President. Let's visit him in the White House. Listeners were challenged to guess the president's identity before it was revealed at the end. Fittingly, the 1947 Thanksgiving episode featured a tale from the life of George Washington. The president's study. Good evening. Sit down, won't you? 
You know, the problem of being peacemaker in an argument is not an easy one, particularly when you have two brilliant individuals involved, each firmly believing that he is right. You have to see both sides, but you can't take either side. And still you have to keep them together, as I tried to do in tonight's story. Later on, of course, I'll tell you which president these incidents really happened to. But meanwhile, you may be able to guess. The personal controversy between Ed Taylor and Tom Faraday had been going on for some time. But one morning it came right out in the open at a meeting of my cabinet. All right, gentlemen, gentlemen, uh, we're ready for the report of the Secretary of State. Mr. Faraday, please. Mr. President, the newly appointed minister, Charles Montreux, will soon be arriving in this country. I don't know him personally, but I've heard something of his reputation. He'll be very much in sympathy with the ideals of your administration, Mr. President, and with the ideals of our country. A question, Mr. Faraday. Yes, Mr. Taylor. It's not important whether Montreux is sympathetic with us or not. I'd like to know if we're apt to be sympathetic with him. I see a difference. What do you mean, Ed? France has just been through a revolution in civil war, and her new government is at war with England. The majority of Americans hope to see England win that I war. I beg your pardon, Mr. Taylor. The overwhelming majority of Americans are pro-French in sympathy, and they should be. The new French government is founded on the same liberal ideas as ours. Besides, France is an ally of ours by treaty. Mr. President. Yes, Ed. I wish to make a motion for the Cabinet's consideration. I move that this government suspend the treaty with France. Mr. President, we can't do that. Please, please, gentlemen, please, please. Go on, Ed. I move that this government suspend the treaty with France. We signed it with the previous government of France. That government no longer exists. We can no longer be bound by the treaty. Good heavens, Mr. Taylor. The treaty is not between our government and their government. It's between our people and the French people. Your motion is dishonest and cowardly. Calling me names won't change the facts, Faraday. Any mark of favor from us to France will only put us in danger of war with England. I say we should not even receive this new French minister. Impossible. Faraday, you're not even listening to my arguments. You're opposing me purely for the sake of a... Gentlemen, gentlemen. But, Mr. President, I... Ed, please. I beg your pardon, sir. Gentlemen, we face one big question. Is our treaty with France still binding? Whatever we decide, there's the plain risk of war, and that's the last thing we want. Meanwhile, I want all of you to forget your personal feelings and ask yourselves only what's best for our country. Tom, when is Montreux due to arrive? In about two weeks, sir. But I want to warn this meeting. We'll solve nothing by following advice such as Taylor's been urging. I am Secretary of State. And if I'm to be hampered and obstructed by the Secretary of Treasury, my advice ignored, I can no longer remain in this cabinet. Oh, Tom, please now. President, I don't know why you let those two men cause you so much trouble. Oh, I don't suppose they realize it. You're more important than Mr. Taylor and Mr. Faraday and the whole cabinet and Congress Now, and... just a minute, Miss Sarah. I'm not more important. My job is. All right, your job then. But if they can't get together, you'll have to choose between them. I need them both, Miss Sarah. I know their points of view clash. Taylor favors the notion of an aristocratic monarchy. Faraday is a democratic republican. One believes in authority, and the other has faith in the people. And neither is willing to give up his ideas in favor of the other. Miss Sarah, in times like these, they will have to. England and France are at war. Other nations may join, and at any moment we may be involved. We've got to have national unity. It can't depend on only two men. It does. I've got to bring them together, Miss Sarah. I've got to talk to them separately. 
At first, send me, oh, uh, well, send for Tom Faraday, then get me Ed Taylor. Sit down, Tom. I've asked you to come here because of what happened at the cabinet meeting this morning. I would have said more, Mr. President, but I was afraid of losing my temper entirely. You heard Taylor in the meeting. Of all the short-sighted, dangerous, cold-blooded suggestions I have... Tom, listen. I have listened to him, sir, for over three years. I have seen him twist you around his little finger. Anything to block me. Well, I have something to say about that, Tom. Then I've got to ask you, sir. Either demand his resignation from the cabinet or let me resign. Sour grapes, Tom? Frankly, it isn't all on account of Ed Taylor. I want to go home, have some time with my family... I'm 50 years old, Mr. President. I've been in government service for most of the last 20. I've got grown daughters. I want to know them better before it's too late. I'd like to go home too, Tom. But I can't. Of course, but if I'm no longer in the cabinet, sir, things will go much more smoothly. Let Taylor have his way. I will not. And I won't let you have your way either. I want you to promise to cooperate with Ed Taylor. I don't see what good can come of it. Tom, both you and Ed have a great deal to give your country. You've proven it already. You'll go on proving it in the years ahead. I'm not going to let either of you fail in your duty. You belong in the cabinet, and I'm going to do everything I can to keep you both in it. Mr. President, I don't like Taylor. I don't agree with anything he says or does. But you can compromise. You've got to. Oh, yes, we can compromise on small points. But when it comes to matters of principle, I'm sorry. I can't compromise. And let me say this about Taylor. I don't think he can either. Well, what about my principles? What? Well, never mind. Do I have your promise? I want you both in the cabinet, almost at any cost, at least until we solve the French question. Yes, Mr. President. I'll do my best. Good. Now about the French treaty and Montreux. Uh, Mr. President, you can see how impossible it is to suspend the treaty. So far, I agree with you. But suppose Montreux insists we join France in her war against England. Well, I don't know, sir. It seems to me it depends largely on what orders Montreux's got from his government in Paris. And it depends on public opinion here, doesn't it? That means it depends on Montreux. Exactly. So let's not try to decide everything now. Let's wait for Montreux to arrive in this country. Meanwhile, Tom, you won't forget your promise. I'll try not to, sir. I'm grateful to you. Thank you. Very grateful. You know, radio is a wonderful medium. It's a shame that radio drama is what I'm speaking of. It's a shame that it's gone. It did something for actors, and I have said this many times, that has never been done before or since in all of history. For the journeyman actor, the lay actor, it made him an upstanding, homeowning, stay-in-one-place, family-raising, tax-paying, bill-paying. It did all these things for actors who were not big stars. And you had a steady salary, and you became famous, and people loved you, and you had they became so familiar with your voice. It was a great ID point for me in the theater in New York mm -hmm. and uh, also when I went into pictures in Hollywood. Remember, a Hallmark card will best express your perfect taste, your thoughtfulness. Makers of Hallmark greeting cards bring you tonight a dramatic tribute to Thanksgiving, Why Keep Your Heart in Cold Storage, starring Van Heflin. 
opposite Mr. President, live from Hollywood over all CBS stations. Radio Reader's Digest signed on, guest starring Van Heflin. 1947 was a good year for the 38-year-old actor. That summer, he co-starred with Joan Crawford in Possessed and brought Philip Marlowe to radio as a summer replacement for Bob Hope. His latest film, Green Dolphin Street, just hit theaters. It co-starred Lana Turner and was that year's biggest MGM hit. to pause on Thanksgiving Day and think of the many, many blessings we have to be thankful for. And among the greatest blessings we have are our friends and loved ones. So it seems appropriate tonight to talk about one of the ways we keep that love and friendship alive, the sending of Christmas cards. This year, if you want to send cards that are recognized for their beauty and distinction, and by the wonderful way they have of saying what is in your heart, the store that carries Hallmark cards. And now to preside over our program, here is your Hallmark host, Les Tremaine. Thank you, Tom Shirley, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight we bring you a star whose life reads like an adventure story. South America, Mexico, Honolulu, Alaska, the South Seas, the Orient, all have been ports of call for Van Heflin. Then he saw still more of the world during his three years in the Air Corps and came back to thrill American movie audiences in such pictures as Till the Clouds Roll By and Possessed. And Van, we're happy to have you with us tonight. You know, we've been told that the sort of movie part you like is something good and something different. Well, we believe our story tonight just fits your prescription. Yes, it does, Les. Even the title, Why Keep Your Heart in Cool Storage. By the way, that advice might very well lead to Hallmark cards. <laughs> You're ahead of me, Van. I was going to uh, lead up to the subject of Hallmark and those three words that assure folks of getting the best greeting cards. You don't have to tell me less I know. You turn the card over and look on the back for those three identifying words. A Hallmark card. And those three little words, a Hallmark card, tell your friends you cared enough to send the very best. Ladies and gentlemen, the makers of Hallmark Greeting Cards bring you a wonderful story of one man's Thanksgiving as they present on the Reader's Digest Radio Edition, Why Keep Your Heart in Cold Storage, starring Van Heflin. happened last November. Last November, I was just out of the Army and out of work, too. Ever been in that condition? It made me act in a way I never acted before. I got so my eyes avoided people, my shoulders were hunched over. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't smile with more than one side of my face at a time. Not that I tried very hard. What I had in my soul, I, I had bitterness, that's what. All right, that's the way it was with me. I was hitching rides one day, and when no rides came, I uh, went up to the door of this tiny farmhouse on Highway 63. Hello, son. Oh, uh, have you got a room I could sleep in tonight? Why, certainly, son. Come in. Uh, wait a minute. I, uh, I can't pay. I said come in, son. Okay. Sit down. Thanks. Are you hungry? Did you hear me when I said that I didn't have any money? You hear me when I ask if you were hungry? No. Are you? Yes, but I haven't any money. Well, there's cheese on the table and bread. And well, here's a pitcher of milk. You're a pretty wonderful guy, you know that? Thanks. Was it uh, Army or Navy? Army. Work since you were out? 
about two days. Odd jobs. That's strange. Didn't you have a job before you went in the Army? I didn't go back to it. That's very interesting. Interesting? Yes, if you didn't go back to a job that was waiting for you. This was in your hometown, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it's very interesting that a young fellow like you wouldn't want to go back to his hometown. Say, uh, I like you all right, mister, but uh, you're pretty curious, aren't you? Yes, it's my greatest virtue. Virtue? Virtue. I didn't go back home because nobody wanted me back home. Parents? Yeah, two of them. And they don't want you? No. Girlfriend? Not anymore. Well, that's too bad. Now, whose fault was it you broke up? Oh, it was my fault. I let the army draft me, didn't I? I went away. I went to all those foreign places for a vacation without her. The Solomons, New Guinea, the Russell Islands. It was my fault. Jealous, aren't you? I am not jealous. My mistake. More milk? No, thanks. Look, uh, could I see that uh, room that you were going to lend me? Well, that's right this way. You're tired already. I slept three hours last night in a barn. Well, here's a room. It's a good bed, I think. Huh. Looks wonderful to me. I'll leave you. Be sure to sleep well. You'll need your strength tomorrow. Now, for what? For the job I'm going to get you. Good night. <laughs> His name was Green. I didn't know until I met him that people could be the way he was. A combination of village gossip and blooming saint. But that was Green, all right. The village gossip part of him kept on prying into my affairs, and the saint, the saint, God bless him, found me a job. Well, Harold, here's a young man I telephoned you about last night. Okay, Mr. Green, we can put him to work in the shipping room. Oh, you can start tomorrow. Thank you very much. Uh, and look, Mr. Green, I, I'll never forget this. Oh, that's all right. Look, I wonder if you could tell me where I could find a room in town. Mm, Miss Blanchard's is good. You take the third street on the left. Yeah, you walk now, now, wait a minute. You won't need all these directions, son, for another week or two. Well, why not? You won't be paid for another week or two. About a week and a half. Well, I... Uh, so you'd better come back to my house. Well, look, I, I don't want to bother you, Mr. Green. It bothered me terribly to feel you were sleeping in a barn for the next week and a half. So you come on back to my house. That was the saint part of him. When we got back to the farmhouse, the village gossip took over. Uh, did I say village gossip? He was also something like a cop getting a third degree. I don't know why I took it. Well, you have a job now. Yeah. I suppose you'd be writing home to tell the folks about it. Who says so? Where is your hometown? It doesn't matter. Did the girl get married? How do I know what she did? You know what she did. Do I? Of course you do. You're too interested not to have found out. You're too jealous not to torture yourself by finding out. All right, so I know and so you don't know and so that's the way it's going to stay. You're going to write to her or just your folks about the new job? I'm not going to write to anybody. Why not? I told you, nobody back there is interested in me. Your parents aren't interested in you. Look, you seem to be all in a sweat about my personal affairs, and the only reason I'm bothering with your questions is that you've done me a great favor. Well, I don't mean to pry. Well, but you are prying, and the worst part of it is that I've said enough to give you the wrong idea, and now I've got to go on and tell you this much more. It's not my parents' fault. They're not unnatural parents. They're not interested in me because I haven't been a good son. That's all. In uh, what way were you not a good son? 
I was a bum. Before the war, of course. That's right, that's right. Tried one job after another, I suppose, and gave them all up. Yeah, that's it. And your parents didn't like that. Well, would you like it if you were my parents? Like it? No. Be interested in you, yes. Did you write to them during the war? Some. Never. Did they write to you? Yes. Well, now tell me one thing. Do your parents know where you are now? They have no idea where I am. I'll bet I know why you don't tell them. I'll bet it's because if they knew, they'd come around pestering you. Isn't that it? Oh, what if it is? It is, that is. Of course it is. I don't want them bothering their heads about me. What of it? Nothing. Uh, nothing of it. Except that if they were really not interested in you, it'd be all right to tell them where you are. They wouldn't bother you at all if they were not interested in you. But I... I... Well... Uh, oh, you... Look, you, you get me all mixed up. <laughs> I'm afraid you got yourself all mixed up, son. I broke away from him and went into the room that he had given me. I tried to think of something else, but I just didn't care about anything except the fact that I was all mixed up. He was right, I was mixed up. After a while, I began to want to talk about it. I went out into the living room. But now, wouldn't you know it, Mr. Green didn't seem to want to talk at all. I'm writing letters, Jordan. Oh, oh, sorry. Keep quiet. Thanksgiving letters. Yeah? Well, I'm finishing up this one. I wish you'd read that one there on the table. See if I spelled and punctuated correctly. Yeah, sure, huh? Glad to... Dear Miss Austin, you may be surprised to hear from an old pupil that I write to several people each year at Thanksgiving time to let them know how thankful I am. What they did for me. You may have forgotten me, Miss Austin, but I was a student of yours in the sixth grade in 1916. I'm writing to thank you because in that year you got me interested in literature. Every day since I left you, literature has been a delight to me, and I thank you. Yours gratefully, Martin Green. Hey, look, what the... <laughs> what is this? Now, what's the matter? Something misspelled? Uh, something ungrammatical? No, no, but what, what kind of a letter is this? What's a Thanksgiving letter? <laughs> I never heard of Thanksgiving letters. Well, how many people have? I invented them. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, uh, what's the idea of them? Well, doesn't the letter explain that? They're just for the purpose of giving thanks to people who've done something for you. Well, what's the matter? You seem to resent the idea. No, 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 I don't resent it. It's just that I... Uh, well, it, it, may, it makes me ashamed. Why? Well, I, I never think of things like that. I don't have a copyright on the idea. Well, I don't have anybody to write to anyways. So. Nobody to thank? No, nobody uh, I see. Hmm. You know, funny thing. Last year I wrote four Thanksgiving letters and all four were to relatives. But never before last year had I realized I had anything to thank those relatives for. But I did have something to thank them for. <laughs> <laughs> I thank one of them for spanking me once. <laughs> well, could you hand that letter back? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I think I'll go mail it. Want to come along? Oh, no, thanks. Now, I'll stay here. I've uh, got some things to think about. 
Radio Reader's Digest debuted on September 13, 1942 on CBS. The famed magazine actually didn't sponsor the show. They provided the material. Hallmark Greeting Cards was the sponsor. In 1947, Les Tremaine was the host. People didn't know my face particularly, but as soon as they heard the voice, they knew who it was. And it was a great tie-in for me. Telephone operator. Just at random, you pick up yeah. the phone and make a yeah. call and they say, I know their voice? Mm-hmm. What was that show you were on? You know, <laughs> a lot of older ladies, you know, uh, middle-aged ladies or telephone operators, and they know voices. Traveling around the country, you sign your name on a credit card in a gas station or something, and they remember you. And you have friends everywhere. It's beautiful, not only as an entree to a lot of things, but just the fact that there is a warm feeling in the recollections of the things you did and they heard you do. Your imagination created everything. Our program continues now with the second act of tonight's story, Why Keep Your Heart in Cold Storage, starring Van Heflin. Mary, no! God, let Let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Hey, boy, give me a paper, please. Thanks. Hmm, very interesting. Eddie Cantor's still missing. Sponsor has no hope. Of course not. If he had hope, what would he want with Cantor? presents Cookie Fairchild's Orchestra, Bert Gordon, the Mad Russian, and the star of our show, me, <laughs> Harry Monsen. Live from KFI Hollywood at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time, the Eddie Cantor Show signed on NBC. In storyline, Cantor had been kidnapped by Gerald Moore, and Harry Von Zell had taken over. I'm a little teapot, Sarah Berner guest starred as Hildegard. Here is my handle, here is my spout. When I get all steamed up, then I shout, Just tip me over, pour me out. I'm a very clever pot, that's true. Here's an example what I can do. 
I can change my handle and my spout Just tip me over for me <laughs> Yes, sir, Cantor is gone, ladies and gentlemen And now you have me, you lucky, lucky people <laughs> Well, tonight I've come from... Thank you Thank you, tonight I've come... Uh, Mr. Vonzell Tiny, what is it? Uh, look, I've been the sound effects man for Eddie Cantor for 12 years. Whenever he wanted a door slammed, I slammed it. Yeah. Whenever he wanted the phone to ring, I rang it. Yeah, well, what about it? Well, what about it? At this very minute, the kidnappers may be beating him over the head. <laughs> or punching him. Or shooting him. Or throwing him against the wall. Or kicking him downstairs. Look, Tiny, maybe they're only choking him. Oh, they couldn't. Why not? I haven't got a sound effect for that. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I think what you've done to Mr. Catter is, is terrible. What? Here we are, all stuffed with Thanksgiving turkey, and poor Eddie Catter isn't here. Wherever he is, I, I wonder if he had Thanksgiving dinner. I wonder. Catter! Yes, babyface Moore? We've been holding you for ransom for three weeks. This is the end. I know. Couldn't I have a wing or a leg instead? Cantor, <laughs> watch your step. We ain't holding you here for nothing. Nobody's paid your ransom yet, so you gotta earn your keep. I gotta earn my keep. I do my best. I cook for you, I sew for you, I scrub for you. And what do you do all day long? It's nag, nag, nag. <laughs> what about it? We ain't even married. <laughs> Anna, why are you always trying to get out of doing the housework? Ain't you used to it? No. At home, we have a gadget that scrubs the floor, washes the clothes, makes the beds, and cooks the meals. It's quite a gadget. What's it called? Ida. <laughs> anyway, anyway, baby face, your Thanksgiving dinner's all ready. Here it is. All right, I'll call my partner, Max. He's outside watching for cops. Dinner's ready. Come on in, Max. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Christmas? Why, this is Thanksgiving. Oh, gee, I forgot to color my Easter egg. <laughs> Let's start eating, fellas. You know, I just couldn't bring myself to kill this turkey. It kept looking up at me with those sad eyes. How'd you finally kill him? I made believe it was the stalk. <laughs> Come on, fellas, dig and have some turkey. Would you please pass the cranberry sauce? <laughs> like the turkey baby face. It tastes tough. Pass the cranberry sauce. <laughs> this turkey is good, isn't it, baby face? It's a tom. It's a tom turkey. A tom turkey? How can you tell? On his chest was tattooed Dewey for president. <laughs> Those Republicans don't miss a trick. Pass the cranberry sauce. <laughs> you like the turkey baby face? It tastes a little soapy. Where'd the soap come from? I had to lather it up so I could shave the feathers off. You shaved the feathers off? Yeah, don't worry. When I got through, I basted it with aftershave lotion and sprinkled it with talcum powder. Hey, what's that white spot on his neck? That's a Band-Aid. I shaved him too close. Enter your nuts. Please, Mr. Cranberry sauce! Look, we have no cranberry sauce. Why do you keep saying... 
Beste Quendericht-Sohn! Beste Quendericht-Sohn! Wie YouTube-Planin! The show aired at 10.30 p.m. in the East, opposite a Thanksgiving Day documentary on CBS and a drama on ABC. I told him I was hungry. I told him I was cold. What happened? He sold me a chocolate bar, a windbreaker, and charged me a half a buck for parking my car. While Cantor was still a successful showman, his rating fell out of the top 50 for the first time in his long career. Now to the far west of America and Canada for two stories. To British Columbia for a ship disaster off the storm-raked shores of the Pacific Northwest and to Hollywood for a preview of Christmas. First, to Dennis Sweeting of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation at Vancouver, British Columbia. On Monday night, Canada's wild and dangerous west coast claimed its latest victims. The American transport Clarksdale Victory went aground on lonely, uninhabited Hippa Island. It's about 125 air miles from Prince Rupert. 150 from Ketchikan in Alaska, and 500-odd from Vancouver. A little while ago, I talked to Captain Elford, Port Warden at Prince Rupert, and he told me what those near the spot think must have happened. She went aground between 10 and 11 Monday night. A high sea ran, and there wouldn't have been a chance in the world of safely launching a lifeboat. Ships headed for the scene, but they couldn't approach her, and they couldn't get a man ashore. When they arrived, the vessel was submerged, except for her forecastle. A plane reported three men on shore, but Captain Elford told me that everyone doubted that if the men were there, they could be from the vessel. A party of British Columbia Provincial Police, led by Indian guides, headed across the Queen Charlotte Islands to approach by land. Yesterday morning in Vancouver, men of the Canadian Army waited to fly to the island. Weather prevented it. Today the waves have died down, and men of the American Coast Guard climbed on the wreck. There they found four men alive, suffering terribly from exposure, but still alive. And with them were four others dead. A small search party's been put ashore, and it found nothing. There's little hope that any of the rest of the 51 men on the Clarksdale victory will be found. The sea has claimed them for its own. This is Dennis Sweeting of the CBC in Vancouver, British Columbia, and now to David Anderson in Hollywood. After 11 o'clock, stations from coast to coast broadcast local late-night programming. In the East, news and music dominated the air until ABC, NBC, and CBS signed off after 1 a.m. Here is a KNX weather bulletin. Temperatures tonight will drop to below freezing in some areas of Southern California. Right now in Studio B at Columbia Square in Hollywood, it is zero. That means nothing. And here's why. Steve? <laughs> I don't like that laugh at all, you know. The... <laughs> On the West Coast, Is it a little too loud as couples there? cozied up by the fireside, CBS's KNX had an 11.15 talk show. It was hosted by a young comedian named Steve Allen. Seven years later, Steve Allen would become the first Tonight Show host on NBC.
Well, it was a strange thing. Arthur asked me to join him on that show. Actually, Arthur had been given an opportunity to go network. Up to that time, he had been uh, the local morning man. He'd come up from Washington to take over the 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. slot. And was doing both shows, as yes, I Yes, for a couple for a of years. Yes, he was. They had great belief in Arthur, and he certainly proved that belief because he is, without a doubt, one of the great salesmen of all time. I learned an awful lot while I was with him, 14 years about. Chesterfield presents Arthur Godfrey time. Yes, it's Arthur Godfrey and all the little Godfrey. The Mariners and Archie Blyer and his orchestra. Hello, hello, everybody. Happy belly ache to you. <laughs> I got a letter from Mrs. Gerald R. Parrish of the... Uh, Washington, D.C., she says, you seem to enjoy in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia so much, I thought you'd like to hear some alternate lyrics, which I learned as a child. Arch, give me that intro again. In the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia... Next time on Breaking Walls. Well, on December 1st, it's Breaking Walls episode 98, Christmas week 1947 as we continue our story on the most popular season in radio history. In the meantime, all interstitials and segments in this show feed will be for November and December of that year, helping to deck the halls and fill in the chronological gaps. The reading material used in today's episode was Frank and Ann Hummert's Radio Factory by Jim Cox, On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings 1932-53, to by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine, January 20th, October 27th, and December 1st, 1947. Look, I won't have you kicking my favorite song around like that. Doggone, that's a pretty song. It's, uh, well, here it is the day after Thanksgiving, and I got a sort of a faraway feeling. Reason is I can't crowd up any closer to the mic. I'm sitting here like a hibernating bear, wearing my old purple pajamas, trying not to breathe. These pajamas used to fit me, too, but today I got a bare midriff. On the interview front, Jackson Beck, Hans Conried, Stats Cotsworth, John Gibson, Tony Marvin, and Jan Miner were with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. These interviews can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. Chuck Shaden interviewed Ken Carpenter and Les Tremaine. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. While Spurdvac was with Betty Lou Gerson and Jack Johnstone. For more information, please go to spurdvac.com. And Barbara Walters interviewed George Burns for 2020. Do we really look so uncivilized in our pajamas? Selected music featured in today's episode was Over the River and Through the Woods by the U.S. Air Force Band, Holiday on Skis by Al Kyola and Riz Ortolani, Joy by George Winston, and Star of Bethlehem by John Williams. Bow-legged trousers and flower sack coats and afford worthwhile dividends of comfort and self-respect. Special thanks to our sponsors, the Fireside Mystery Theater and 12 Chimes, It's Midnight, Check them both out on iTunes 
or at their links in the written credits. It's amazing what you learn as you grow older, ain't it? Also, the Fireside Mystery Theater will be taping their next podcast on Sunday, November 17th, at the Slipper Room. That's at 167 Orchard Street in New York City. The theme? Holiday Haunts. Doors open at 4.30, and yours truly will be a member of this month's cast. Come out and support great, new audio drama. I couldn't acknowledge them all, but I never thought that anything like that would happen when I said I didn't have anything to do. That ain't what you said. You said you didn't have a beat-up thing to do. <laughs> well, at that time, I didn't. But uh, it turned out real fun. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we had quite a party here, quite a party. Archie said that the Thanksgiving party he went to last night was sort of nip and tuck all evening. Speaking of which, you may have noticed that our second commercial break belonged to the teaser for Burning Gotham, the original audio drama series for which I have been in development since June of 2018. My partner Olga and I have finished writing the pilot. We're now working on additional episodes and putting together a comprehensive plan to bring this series to you with the level of time, quality, and entertainment it deserves. Be on the listen for new information before the year is out. When you say the word quality, three Golden Age of Radio collectors must be thanked. Ted Davenport, Jerry Haindages, and Goodman Danielson. All three helped supply audio for this episode, and if you're an old-time radio fan, contact them for very reasonable prices on master quality recordings. They are who the large retailers buy from. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurdvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. By the way, Spurdvac which is the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy, will be having their 2019 convention next week, that's November 7th through the 10th, at the Crown Plaza Hotel at 3131 Bristol Street in Costa Mesa, California. For more information, please go to spurvac.com. Breaking Walls Episode 98 will focus on Christmas Week 1947. In the meantime, we'll bridge the month with background stories, interview clips, and show segments from the most listened to holiday season in radio history. This episode will be available beginning December 1st, 2019, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. And you can join the Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash thewallbreakers. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until December 1st, 2019, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 97, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>